The situation in North Korea has grown even more dire than the last time it grew more dire, and maybe less dire than the next time it grows more dire, when it will be even more dire than now, when it's already really dire. News came over the weekend that fat, crazy, North Korean fat, crazy man Kim Dum Fudge has either set off a hydrogen bomb or a helium balloon. He always gets those two confused. Depending on which it was, Kim Too Fat is now in a position either to wipe out the entire west coast of the United States or hold a children's birthday party if he can find a clown who's willing to work for him after he had the last one tortured to death. Winsomely attractive ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, reacted strongly to the news. In a speech to the Security Council, the alluring brunette said, quote, Listen to me, you quivering tubs of useless lard. I'm so sick of looking at your flabby faces staring back at me with glazed incomprehension every time this skull-crushing lunatic blows something up. If I don't get some action out of you, I'm going to take my shoe off and go around the room hammering my high heel into your stupid foreheads one by one, unquote. Moved by the smoking hot ambassador's vaguely arousing rhetoric, the Security Council immediately reacted by unanimously passing a resolution demanding more diplomatic parking spaces near their favorite Manhattan massage parlor, saying they couldn't concentrate on their happy endings for fear their limos were going to get towed. Adorable Ambassador Haley hailed the resolution as, quote, a major step toward putting these UN ignoramuses out of work where they belong so New York can finally use this expensive piece of real estate for something worthwhile and I can do something more pleasant and productive with my life like sticking a nail in my ear, unquote. Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis also reacted to Kim Blomey's threat, telling reporters, quote, if that fat D-back so much as moves a finger toward the button, there'll be nothing left of him but a radioactive mound of fat cells and maybe that stupid hair of his which looks like it might actually survive a nuclear blast but anyway we're sure as hell going to find out unquote meanwhile a panel of experts gathered to announce that their dithering and inaction had gotten us into this situation in the first place and they strongly recommended that there be more dithering and inaction so that the situation could slowly get worse President Trump, meanwhile, is considering ordering a nuclear strike, though whether it will be on North Korea, the U.N., or the panel of experts is still unclear. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm the hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. ship the zing it's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hooray, hooray, oh, hooray, hooray. I wish that's the way the news really was from North Korea. It's like a bunch of useless people doing nothing. All right, Dr. Sebastian Gorka is with us to discuss why he left the Trump administration. Plus, it's mailbag day. Yaho, yaho, all your problems will be solved. And to let, just make sure you get to see uh, Dr. Gorka, we're going to stay on Facebook and YouTube, but that doesn't mean you have no moral obligation to subscribe. In fact, it deepens your moral obligation to subscribe because we're giving you stuff when you should really be paying a lousy 10 bucks a month. And if you pay the lousy 10 bucks a month, you get to ask all the questions. As you will hear, we will solve people's problems. Our answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life on occasion for the better. If you subscribe for the year, at a lousy hundred bucks, Leftist Tears Tumblr. Come on, it's the Leftist Tears Tumblr. It comes complete with Leftist Tears and automatically refills every time Donald Trump makes a speech. And 
just, even if you don't subscribe, we're going to give you some free food. I mean, that's just the kind of show we are, because we support Blue Apron, and Blue Apron, Blue Apron is a service that will send excellent gourmet meals to your door, and then you home cook them. It's, it, show, it gives you the, uh, the ingredients fully measured, fully you know, diced out, gives you these very simple uh, instructions, and you can make restaurant-level meals in your house. It's the kind of thing that you don't ordinarily find yourself cooking at home, like the upcoming meals are summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad. I know you make that at your house at yeah, Austin, but yeah, time. yeah. <laughs> uh, soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans, skillet veg vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits, garlic, butter, shrimp, and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. I mean, this is stuff, obviously, you know, it comes with great ingredients from over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. So it's, like I said, it's not the sort of thing you usually cook at home, but the way they do it, you can cook it. It's affordable. It's less than $10 per person per meal. You get to spend some time with your family cooking, and it's got a lot of variety. They change the recipes each week, uh, or you can let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you with whatever they are ready to send. It's easy each meal comes with step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can usually be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, right? I told you, free food. I mean, how simple is this, right? <laughs> this is simple. We're giving you free food. Take the free food. It's And you get free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Andrew. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Don't wait. Blueapron.com slash Andrew. Blue Apron, it is a better way to cook and also to eat. So we have a terrible Category 5 storm front of hypocrisy, lies, and BS heading toward America in the wake of Donald Trump's uh, getting, you know, declaring that uh, DACA, the, the deferred, what is it, the deferred something or other, right? No, I, I forget. But anyway, it's the thing that said that uh, uh, illegals could stay here if they had been brought, come over, if they had come over, I think at the age of 16 and were no older than 31 or 36, what's it called? Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So he said in six months this thing is gone and Congress has got to do something about it, so get cracking, basically. And every, oh my God, the, the reaction, first of all, the first guy who kind of went against Trump was Trump himself. <laughs> I mean, this, this is the problem with supporting. Like, I really think this is the right thing to do. It was wrong of Obama to put this thing in action. But Trump tweets out, uh, he says, he says, Congress now has six months to legalize DACA, something the Obama administration was unable to do. And if they can't, I will revisit this issue. <laughs> That's like that's hardly that's hardly like the biggest threat in the world, you know. Like I will revisit I will revisit this issue. It's like he himself is against. So you know, and he says, you know, this is something people keep saying. He promised to get rid of DACA. This was a big campaign promise. But even during the campaign, he was kind of mealy mouthed about it. He was saying, oh, we'll work with them. They have to go, but we'll work with them. And now he's just saying he loves, loves, loves them. Have we got the Trump cut? Yeah, cut number one. Well, I have a great heart for the folks we're talking about. A great love for them. And people think in terms of children, but they're really young adults. Uh, I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it 
properly. And I can tell you, in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. And really, we have no choice. We have to be able to do something. And I think it's going to work out very well. And long term, it's going to be the right solution. So basically, he's saying this is Congress's job to pass laws, pass a law, or shut up, basically. And even Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan started out, oh, this is the wrong thing to do. Today, he was like, this is the right thing to do. I, it's what, whatever people want. That's what I'm saying now. Paul Ryan, I'm Paul Ryan, and whatever you like, that's who I am. <laughs> it's like this is, this is our level of government. You know, government and the news has become so stupid lately. I mean, let's, let's look at this for a minute. Oh, Barack Obama, remember him? He wasn't he, he was he was somebody once, right? He used to yeah, he used to do something. It's hard to remember what he did because his legacy is now a smoking ash heap on the garbage dump of history, you know, so it's hard to remember what it was exactly that Barack Obama did for a living. But now he comes he unleashes, he unleashes on Facebook on Trump. Listen to this. To target these young people is wrong because they have done nothing wrong. It is self-defeating because they want to start new businesses, staff our labs, serve in our military, and otherwise contribute to the country we love. And it is cruel. It is cruel. What if our kid's science teacher or our friendly neighbor turns out to, to be a dreamer? Let's be clear, clear. The action today isn't required legally. It's a political decision and a moral question, but I just want to remember history I, oh, that's me. Wait, I, I want to say it. He says this is a political decision, but it's a moral question. But I, me, Clavin, I want to remember history. I just put a note underneath that. Let's remember how Barack Obama played this, okay? Let's talk about politics for a minute. Here's Barack Obama in 2005 when he still hasn't learned that he can do anything he wants and, gets away, and get away with it. Here he is knowing that the country is sick and tired of having people pour over their borders, having the rule of law scoff that, having people just swarm in, criminals sometimes coming in with no government doing absolutely nothing. Here's Barack Obama in 2005. This is cut four. You know, we all agree on the need to better secure the border and to punish employers who choose to hire illegal immigrants. Uh, you know, we are a generous and welcoming people here in the United States, but those who enter the country illegally and those who employ them disrespect the rule of law, uh, and they are showing disregard for those who are following the law. Uh, we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully uh, to become immigrants in this country. Suddenly, he was, he's making a distinction between illegal immigrants, people who come in illegally, which is against the law, that's why they call it illegal immigrants, and people who come in legally who are called immigrants, who we always welcome in this country and have since it began, okay? So he's making a distinction there. Okay, now it's 2011, Elect re-election time is coming up. Suddenly he's being shouted at by Latinos and he realizes this is a big part of the leftist policy is bring these guys in so that they vote Democrats. And all of a sudden he says, he's saying to them, they're shouting at him every time he makes, makes a speech, let us in, let us in, you're the president, right? The president passes laws. <laughs> No, 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 Barack Obama, Mr. Constitution explains, <laughs> Dr. Constitution explains that he just can't do that. Sometimes when I talk to immigration advocates, you know, they wish I could just bypass Congress and change the law myself. But that's not how democracy works. So he can't do it. And he said this, he must have said this 20 times. He cannot 
give people amnesty just by executive order. That's not how democracy works. It's not constitution. I'm trying to restore the rule of law. Then it's 2012, okay? Then he's running for re-election. And he comes up with, the guy was a master politician. I mean, when I go back and look at some of Obama's tapes, he was a master politician. He knows that there is a strong anti-illegal immigration contingent on, in the Republican Party. And he knows that if he finds the right people, people who were brought over, it was no fault of their own, they came over without their parents, they're under 16, whatever, you know, and they're, and they're legal, a lot of, there's about 800,000 of them, they're legal, they have a job, they haven't done anything wrong. If he, if he does an executive order, giving them essentially amnesty for two years, the re Republican base is gonna start screaming putting the Republican politicians in a position where they have to say, no, we reject these children. We cast them out into the exterior darkness where there is great weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are cold-hearted Republicans. He's setting them up. It was a beautiful setup. But even so, he knew he couldn't do it because it was an unpopular move to do it by executive order. So he assured everybody, this is now we're talking 2012, he assured everybody that it was just a temporary measure. Let's be clear, this is not amnesty. This is not immunity. This is not a path to citizenship. It's not a permanent fix. This is a temporary stopgap measure that lets us focus our resources wisely while giving a degree of relief and hope to talented, driven, patriotic young people. It is the, it is the right thing to do. Excuse me, sir. I, I, it's not time for questions, sir. I, I, not while I'm speaking. Precisely because this is temporary, Congress needs to act. There's still time for Congress to pass the DREAM Act this year because these kids deserve to plan their lives in more than two-year increments. And we still need to pass comprehensive immigration reform that addresses our 21st century economic and security needs. Okay, so that was Faraj O'Hara. I can never remember the guy's name because, you know, now that his legacy is just like a sort of wisp of smoke blowing away on the winds of Donald Trump, it's hard to remember what, what, his, what the name of our last president even was. But now he's saying it's temporary, 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 stopgap measure, temporary, temporary. Now Trump gets rid of it and says Congress has got to pass a law. And now Obama writes, ultimately, this is about basic decency. This is about whether we are a people who kick hopeful young strivers out of America or whether we treat them the way we'd want our own kids to be treated. It's about who we are as a people and who we want to be. So it goes from a stopgap measure to the very measure of who we are as a people. It's a temporary thing. Suddenly, it's who we are as a people. I mean, do, do Democrat voters ever get tired of being played? Do they ever get tired of being emotionally, you know, batted around with this kind of garbage and this hypocrisy? And accusing Donald Trump of being political when Trump has just stumbled into this beehive because the polls show that while people were against the way Obama did this, nobody wants to throw people out of the country. I mean, people are doing a job. They're kind of wanting to have a path to citizenship, basically, obviously more on the left than on the right. But still, even on the right, these are not the people that they're concentrating on. They're concentrating on the bad guys who creep in and who we don't have any control over. I mean, well, I'll go on in this in a minute, but first, I have to just point out the fact that while I'm saying this to you, not only is every word I'm saying the absolute truth, but my 
teeth look fantastic. Have you noticed that? You were probably so dazzled by the truth of what I was saying that you didn't notice. Wow, those teeth, it's, it's not what he's saying. It's the teeth. Of course it is. Because the reason is, is I use an electric toothbrush. An electric toothbrush, this, I, I, the, the lady who cleans my teeth told me this, will take the stain off your teeth better than anything else. But the problem is they're so huge. And that is why there's Quip. Quip is it's a new company. It's got an electric toothbrush that looks like it was designed by Steve Jobs, basically. It's sleek. It is. It's really sleek, beautiful. It's really, uh, it's much cheaper than the bigger ones. You can put it in your dop kit when you go and travel with it. And so you don't have to suddenly uh, brush with your hands. It really, and an electric toothbrush just works better. And you can even subscribe with Quip. You can receive new brush heads on the dentist recommended three month plan for just five bucks, including free shipping. I actually do this. I, who cannot even remember where I left, like my shoes, actually do subscribe and get new brushes every three months because that's what the dentist told me to do. This was one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2000, uh, 2016. They won a 2016 GQ Grooming Award, and Quip starts at just 25 bucks Right now, go to getquip.com slash Claven. I was just about to ask you the same thing. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Getquip.com slash Claven to get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Claven. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Claven. They really do work better than the ones you use with your hands. So, oh, have we got Sebastian Cohen? Excellent. Let us stop here discussing this because it's so uh, frustrating. Let us bring on uh, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Um, I I can see him, but I can't hear him. Can I get his sound? Have right, I've got to go. Now I've got you. All right. <laughs> Dr. Sebastian Gorka, until recently, was Deputy Assistant to President of the United States Donald Trump, but he left and left in, with a stinging uh, letter that really uh, kind of shook me a little bit because you have been, uh, Dr. Gorka, welcome. It's good to see you. Call me Sebastian. Thanks, Drew. Uh, and you you have been uh, one of the most eloquent defenders of the president. And I was very surprised when uh, you walked out and you not only walked out, but you left uh, a letter saying basically that the people who had made who had brought the Make America Great agenda were being kind of weeded out of the administration. So let me start at the beginning. Some people said that you quit. Some people said you were tossed out. Some people said it was something in between. Now, what exactly happened? So after the Afghanistan speech by the president, and uh, I commend you for your analysis of the speech. I'm catching up with my, my uh, Clavenator podcast. Um, great analysis. I don't, I don't agree with it, but it was a great analysis. Okay. After I heard that speech, I realized the writing's on the wall. Uh, I was a deputy assistant to the president, but I worked for Steve Bannon, the chief strategist in his office. Once he had left, I was on vacation, he'd resigned. Uh, the the idea that the the MAGA agenda could be pushed forward effectively from the inside uh, after that speech never mentioned the word he used again and again and again when he addressed Congress, when he addressed the uh, Arab world in Riyadh, when he was speaking about Western civilization in Warsaw. The fact that the phrase radical Islamic terrorism was deleted meant that that I can't serve him effectively. I requested an appointment with uh, General Kelly to resign the Friday that it leaked to the uh, Federalist. I told him on the phone that uh, I'm going to resign my commission and uh, effective that Friday. 
uh, and uh, that's how it proceeded. Uh, the day after, on Saturday, the president reached out to me. He thanked me for my service. He said he is staying on the agenda, the MAGA agenda, and he would like me to help support his agenda from the outside. And I messaged back to him, absolutely, that is what we, Steve, myself, are going to do. So specifically, it was, not, it was, it was the failure to mention Islamic terrorism in the Afghan speech, but also the fact that you don't see a path to victory. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? No, I, it's, it, look, the, 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 the Afghan speech was, was the final catalyst. What we'd seen in, in prior months is the boxing out of people associated with the original platform the president won on. We saw key individuals at the NSC being fired, having their security clearances pulled or suspiciously temporarily suspended. And then you realize, you know, I came here not to go on television and just support the president, but to actually have an impact on the policy agenda. Uh, that's actually probably much easier to do on the outside. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. And, and Drew, I, I don't know how many in your audience are hardcore MAGA supporters, but I'd like them to understand we are in it for the long game, okay? This is going to be an eight-year administration, not an eight-month administration, and the president is staying on message, and the current state of affairs in the West Wing is a temporary state. Okay, well, that, that is, was my next question. Now, I mean, this because this speaks to the fact that Bannon left and then you went after him, it speaks to something that worries people about Donald Trump. It worries me about Donald Trump that he has in his nature this kind of inner Democrat that we're all afraid is going to come out. You can kind of hear it as he's talking about the DACA thing. You know, he's sort of, oh, I love these people. Before it was they've got to go. We'll, we'll be nice about how they go, but they've got to go. So many people cheered when he said build the wall. I think people are worrying that this inner Democrat is going to come out with if he's surrounded by people like his daughter. I think um, that scenario is a function of lazy journalism. I think that's what the left would have you believe. Uh, Monica Crowley is a friend of mine, and she nailed it. The weekend of the election, after we'd won, I heard her speak at a, at a David Horowitz event. And she said, you know, everybody misunderstands the president because they want to put him in a box. You can't put him in a box because he's not an ideological candidate. He was an attitudinal candidate. You can't, he doesn't, you know, this is a guy who, who walked around the campaign stage giving a speech, waving the gay pride flag. Not exactly a standard GOP response, okay? So um, this, is the, this is the guy who pulled out of the Paris uh, climate accords like that. So what is he? Is he a neocon? Is he a neoliberal? Is he a Manhattan Democrat? He's none of those things. He's a man who wants to win. You cannot affix a lazy ideological label onto the president. Um, he is an individual who truly understands that America can be great again and will be great again. But the problem right now is, Drew, not that he has latent Democrat tendencies. He doesn't really. The problem is he's surrounded by individuals, for various reasons we can discuss, who would have been comfortable at home in a Clinton White House. I mean, Tucker Carlson nailed it. He said after Steve resigned, Whatever you think about Steve Bannon, he would not have felt at home in a Hillary Clinton White House. Yeah, that's we true. have people in the White House now 
Right. We have people in the White House now, Drew, who would have been cabinet members in a Hillary Clinton White House. Wow. That's the problem. Okay. Well, that's a fair, but that's a very powerful thing to say. And obviously, uh, the president is in charge of who's in the White House. He's the guy who makes the appointments. So does that mean that he is moving toward his inner Clinton, or is there something there that he wants to? Is there? Let me put it to you this way: Why is he surrounded by people who could be in the Clinton uh, White House? Is that a strategy, or is that part of his nature? Two, two things. Number one, uh, everybody, I think, who follows politics understands that what happened on November the 8th uh, was like the Wolverines in Red Dawn. <laughs> it was a scrappy bunch. I know, seriously, it was a scrappy bunch of insurgents who happened to win against the juggernaut that was the Soviet Union. You know, this man never served in politics, never held a flag officer rank in the U.S. military, uh, trounced 16 establishment candidates on the right, and defeated a woman who'd spent $700 million for the seat that she thought was owed to her, okay? So there's like 12 of us that came into the White House who are hardcore MAGA guys. Um, so number one, it was a hostile takeover, Drew. Hostile takeovers are not easy. Uh, secondly, uh, there's the broader question. The president has a very interesting management style. The president is very comfortable with unusually high levels of, let's say, constructive chaos. He'll, he'll bring you in if you're impressive. And he doesn't look at, is there a D or an R after your name? Can you get stuff done? And he'll allow you to, to fight it out, duke it out underneath him until he sees who's really impressive. Um, but I predict for you right now, I'm not saying I'm going back in. I'm not saying Steve's going back in. There will be high-ranking firings happening before Christmas because the president will real realize he is being poorly served by key advisors. And you know what, Drew? Most of those people will turn out to be the Democrats inside the building. Interesting. All right. Now, Steve Bannon goes back to Breitbart. Are you going back to Breitbart, too? Are you going to work at Breitbart, too? No. No, I'm going to help Steve. Steve has got lots of very interesting projects. I'm going to assist and work with the Breitbart team. But I'm in negotiations with several places right now to continue to leverage uh, my media brand, if you will, and also help embody the, the MAGA national security platform outside of the government in the private sector in the think tank community. But st just stay tuned. Uh, so, so Bannon says... This is war. He says, I am now at war. And, I, and I, obviously, Steve talks like that. I know that he does. But do, do you agree with that? Is this, are you going to war with something, with someone? If so, with whom? And what's, what's your goal? Uh, in the non-kinetic sense, lest CNN ha suddenly has a conniption. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are going to war in the policy arena, in the cultural arena, in the economic arena with the establishment. This is the quintessential anti-establishment candidate. This president was as much defined and supported by his anti-GOP establishment stance as his anti-Clinton stance. And that's the problem the Hill doesn't understand. He was only accidentally the GOP's presidential candidate. He had nothing to do with the GOP establishment writ large as a professional political class. Okay. I, wanna, I just want to ask you two more things. When, what, did, what did you think of uh, yesterday of the, uh, the Dreamer, his actions on the Dreamer uh, thing? I think it was the, the, the perfect uh, cutting of the Solomon's baby. I mean, he really cut through the Gordian knot. He said, the argument, this is unconstitutional. You can't have presidents just 
pretend to make up laws willy-nilly in a nation that has actually a, a House of Representatives and a Senate. So, okay, it's unconstitutional, end it. However, there are some real issues with young people who are brought here who shouldn't be punished for the illegal activities of their parents. So, Congress, let's see the separation of powers and the checks and balances. You help me sort out the really needy cases from the MS-13 guys, and let's work this out together. So it was really a, a cutting of the Gordian knot. So my final question is, the, pr the press, which is basically the left, I mean, the left and the press are now indistinguishable, except I think that the press is now driving the car. They have unleashed their usual racist, racist, racist rant. And I, and I know, by the way, I know they have done this to you. I talked about that. I did a lot of research about that. And uh, you were really... I heard. Uh, well, it was it was disgusting. I mean, you, have, you uh, really were absolutely clean. And they came after you in a vicious, vicious way. Now they've gone after Trump, as they always do. Uh, and, and, and here's, here's the, the question I want to ask. There have been, there has been reason to say that the Breitbart team has allowed voices on their site that are suspect in terms of racism. That you know, guys like Milo, who I know, he, I know he toys with it and he does it ironically, but it still, it still even makes me kind of go, you know, th this is not always a, that's not always a very funny thing. You, whose parents went through some of the hell of this, you understand that it, it racism is not a funny thing. Does does the press is is Trump giving the press an opening here, uh, or is it just the usual thing? I mean, is is has Trump through Bannon allowed them to accuse him uh, more fairly than he should? Does that is that question clear? Thank you, Drew. Um, yeah. Look, just how bad is it? Can we just remind ourselves how bad it is? So you've accused the president of being an anti-Semite. The left has. This is a man whose grandchildren are Orthodox Jews, right. okay? I mean, uh, every week I'd have rabbis come to visit me at the White House, every week to come visit me, members of the Israeli community, the American Israeli community. Uh, I, I, you know, I was invited to address synagogues in New York as a member of the White House. Um, Steve Bannon, his best buddy, was Andrew Breitbart, raised Jewish. His CEO of his company, Larry Solov, is Jewish. Joel Pollock is an Orthodox Jew who's married to a woman of color. So, so how is Breitbart the platform of neo-Nazis? It's, it's Orwellian, it's Orwellian. And I, I don't know the demographic your audience is. I think yours is one of the best podcasts in America no, today. Thank you. I can't wait to catch up. No, seriously. Um, and I just need everybody who's watching or listening to understand, I know the president of the United States. I met him first uh, in 2015. I worked with him. I was in the Oval discussing big issues. There is not a racist cell in that man's body. Down to the molecular level, there isn't. And that the, 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 the mainstream media persists in this calumny is outrageous. They have jumped the shark persistently for eight months. And you know what? That's why CNN is 13th in national rankings, two positions between the cartoons at Nick at Night. I mean, that's the reality. They, you know, if, 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 if the Washington Post wasn't a vanity pro project for Jeff Bezos, there would be no Washington Post. You know, nobody buys the New York Times outside of the Acela Corridor anymore. And there's a reason why a man with his Twitter feed has managed to pull vault into the White House because enough with the lies, enough with the lies. Well, 
Dr. Gorga, thank you. I've got two predictions out of you. One, that this is going to be an eight-year administration, and the other is that we can see uh, MAGA come roaring back. Uh, I, I hope you'll come back and, and talk about the, both those predictions when you have your new uh, gig. I will. It's, it's MAGA 2.0. Just put your seatbelts on. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's good to talk to you. Very interesting. All right. We're going we're gonna to come back and revisit those uh, predictions. Mailbag. <laughs> so, so our first question uh, we have a, from is from Ben uh, Stevenson, uh, who asked. Uh, you know, he says he's been watching Knowles, uh, Knowles's new show, the Michael Knowles uh, show, and uh, he wants to know. You know, who is who is holding Knowles up? I mean, how does Knowles manage uh, to get support? And so we're bringing Knowles on. <laughs> <laughs> you, look like, you look like something out of that. <laughs> so for those of you who can't see, uh, Ben Stevenson sent us the piggyback Trump uh, pants, which <laughs> so they carry Knowles on his piggyback. You look like the guy in that uh, Schwarzenegger Mars movie with a baby inside his chest. <laughs> total recall. Total, total recall. That's like, but that is absolutely brilliant from Ben Stevenson and uh, Knowles. It actually is an improvement on the way you usually look. I got it. <laughs> right, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I came in and found that on my chair this morning. I almost had a heart attack. All right. From the uh, ridiculous to the sublime, uh, from <laughs> actually from the ridiculous to the difficult here. This is from Zach. Uh, Dear great tear gatherer of Schumer. Uh, it's a little embarrassing to say this, but I'll get it out of the way quickly. I have problems with gambling and porn addiction. Do you think these issues are much more common among younger generation? And what advice, if any, do you have? Uh, really serious, and I'm sorry, Zach, to hear it. I know addiction is an awful, awful thing, and I will talk about this at some length. Um, first of all, it's so much harder for young people because you don't – nobody – remembers how hard it used to be to get your hands on porn, Ser you know, seriously, and, and even to gamble. I mean, obviously, if you have an addiction, you could do it, but it's just like you're living in, the, if it's like you have a sweet tooth and you're living in a candy store. You press any button. You know, I, I remember when the internet first came out, I was trying to look up a word for a piece of, a part of the foot for a novel I was writing. I wanted to describe a part of the foot, and I typed it in, and foot porn came out. <laughs> I felt like I didn't even know there was foot porn. It's just so easy to get, and you press a button, and you don't even realize you've crossed into the zone. Here's, here's what I think about addiction. Every time I talk about addiction, uh, I get a lot of really angry mail, and the anger is about the fact that I say that addiction is not a disease. Addiction is not a disease, and the reason I say it's not, the reason they want to call it a disease is because they think it a uh, relieves you of guilt. They think, oh, if it's a disease, you're not guilty for it. It's not a question of guilt for me. It's not a disease because you can't will away a disease, but you can battle, do battle with, um, with an addiction. An addiction is a spiritual struggle. It is a struggle between you and, let's just say, a force that wants to destroy you. That's what it is. And if you understand that you are in a fight, that you're not in a disease. When you have a disease, you suffer the disease. You're not, you don't suffer uh, an addiction. You battle an addiction. You do go to war with an addiction. If you understand that this is the spiritual fight you're in, there are steps that you can begin to take. The first step, and 
I can't recommend this highly enough. As the first step is you should have a very, very active prayer life. You should be praying every day. You should be talking to God about who you are, about the situation you're in, and asking for help and exploring with God how this has happened and what it is doing to your spirit. Because it's it's crushing. I, you know, any addiction is crushing. It's deadening. It's, it's just a, a terrible thing. And it estranges you from yourself. This is not you. You know, this is not you doing this. This is something that is happening to you that you are struggling with. It's a, like a disease of the will, if you want to say it that way. Try this. Try Just try it. Uh, because I have had to break certain kinds of addictions, and this is the way this is this is something that has worked for me. So I can't promise you it'll work for you, but it has worked for me. If you are in prayer and if you are talking to God about it, figure out how long you think you can go without indulging in these addictions. And I would link the, the addictions together. I wouldn't give up one. I'd give them up at the same time. But think about how long you can go without indulging in these addictions. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's a week, maybe it's an hour. I don't know what it is, but you decide. Set a time that's a little bit longer than that. So let's just say for discussion's sake, you can go a week uh, without indulging in your porn addiction. Go for eight days. Arrange this with God. Say you're going to do it. When you get to the end of the eight days, make a decision. The decision is, are you going to indulge in this addiction for a day? Or are you going to go on to the next eight days? If you're going to indulge in it, indulge in it for a day, then go on to the next eight days. At each time, make that decision. Make it a date. Stay off it. Eight days, whatever it is, whatever the time is, a little bit longer. And see how that goes for you. Because if you, you might find that instead of doing it eight days, you go 16 days. You might find after 16 days, you go 24 days. You might find with God's help, you go 32 days and keep going. And there will come a time when the addiction itself will make you feel you will break the poison. You will bust the spiritual hold it has on you. And to go back to the addiction will be worse than the addiction. While you're off it, by the way, while you are, during the time you're off it, pay attention. Pay attention to how good it feels. Pay attention to the fact that you come to know yourself again. Pay attention to the fact that uh, you can do other things with your time. And pay attention to what things help you uh, when the urge comes on, what things help you stay away from the addiction. I, I wish you the best of luck with this. Uh, let me know what happens. Send, send an email back. Uh, and uh, don't forget, I mean, this is one thing Alcoholics Anonymous knows. You cannot do it alone. Uh, you, you know, it is not in man's power to seize back his will. But with God's help, you can actually do it, I swear. All right. From Spencer. Dear Supreme Leader and God's right-hand podcast host, Clavin, with the glowing sparkly dome for a head. That actually is one of my business cards. I actually have it. I have recently been reading the Ian Fleming James Bond books, which I rather enjoy. I enjoy them, too. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is Fleming writes the interactions between men and women uh, completely differently than anything I have observed in real life and how much uh, difference do this, is there between the way the sexes interacted back then and the way they interact back today. Uh, well, look, first first of all, Fleming is writing a romantic spy thriller. And so James Bond always wins with the ladies. They love him. You know, he's always he's always wins. There's a lot of spanking in James Bond, I always notice. A lot of uh -huh. he's always threatening to spank his girlfriends, which uh, as, to taste, do it to taste. You know, it's like you might find that gets you a punch in the mouth. You might find somebody who likes it. But that's just Ian Fleming. That was Ian Fleming. Um, so obviously it's a fantasy. It's a male fantasy. It was never that easy. There were, you know, there's always, there may be people like James Bond, but most of us are not. Uh, but, but the one thing I have observed is that men are now 
nervous about the way they speak to women because of feminism. And I think if you can overcome that, your life will be happier and the life, the, the women in your life will have a happier life as well. So there is a, a real difference. Uh, there was a sort of sense that a relationship between a man and a woman was special. It was not like one of your buddies. I think most women want to be treated like that. I think they feel embarrassed uh, asking for it. I think it'll go really well for you if you try it. There has been that change that the women, they're all, there's all this noise on television from women who say they want to be treated just like men. Those are not normal women. They're, they're not the way most women are. Most women want to be treated like women uh, for some strange reason. Maybe, oh, I know what it is. They're women. So, <laughs> so, so I, wouldn't take your, I wouldn't take too much from the James Bond fantasies, but I also wouldn't take too much from the feminist, which is also a fantasy. Um, from Christian, dear Andrew, if you could change anything in history, what would you change? Uh, I think I would, uh, I would cancel World War I. Completely unnecessary, ended Europe. There would probably be no World War II without World War I. I think Europe would still be intact, basically. I think it was a, a, I think it was a culture committing suicide. Now, it's possible it would have done it anyway, um, but it would have been interesting to not have that horrible destruction of a generation, uh, just wiping off one of the greatest, I would say the greatest culture that has ever existed on the face of the earth, and it was just a terrible thing. Um, all right. <laughs> Dear Supreme Overlord and Master of Shaved Heads, Clavin, what do you think about the current state of marriage and how do you think society can solve the epidemic of children born out of wedlock and children whose parents are divorced? This is from Matt. I, I, you know, I spoke about this a little bit yesterday, so maybe you should go back and look at that. I think that um, this is going to have to be a value thing. You know, it's, it's going to be people. Look, the upper classes the elites and the upper middle class have gone back to marriage. Divorce rates are plummeting among people who are educated, among people who are, uh, have more money. They know, they know the truth. They know this is the way to go. This is what makes for happy life, marriage, children, you know, fidelity, hard work. They know it. What they won't do is they won't preach it. Charles Murray says they refuse to preach what they practice. And I think that is what's going to have to happen. And this is also to come, not to, not to harp on religion, but this also, as our intellectual class begins to realize that their atheism has run out of tricks to keep itself afloat, and as our intellectual class and our academic class begins to come back to God, I think that you will see a revival of this. I think you are seeing a revival of it. The thing that the elites and the educated and the upper class also do, they go to church. This is one of the things they do. They go to church and they go to temple and they actually are religious again, but they're not preaching it. And I think we're going to have to overcome this idea. And the main enemy in this as our, our old friend, the mainstream media, who are just incredibly hostile uh, against religion. I'm running out of time here. Can I do one more? Um, let's see. I can? Okay. Um, Andrew, I have made the very difficult decision to leave the church I grew up in. I've noticed over the last couple of years that it has been moving further and further to the left, supporting things like Black Lives Matter and government-funded health care. I've done some research on other churches, but I wanted to ask you what denomination you belong to and why. I also wanted to know if you had any advice on how to tell my mostly left-wing family that I'm leaving the church uh, we've been a part of for decades, from Bill. Uh, painful. 
And it's happening a lot, a lot of churches losing their way, a lot of them becoming politicized, a lot of them mistaking uh, left-wing morality for Christian morality, which is very different. I, be I believe that God loves Democrats and Republicans. I don't know why, but I believe he does, and I, do I think the church should stay out of politics except in very, very, very specific cases. There is nothing to say that government doing something, because the question is who decides things, right? So there's nothing to say that there is stuff in the gospel to say you don't let a man die in the street. There's nothing to say that government health care is the answer, which I don't think it is. So first, let me answer your last question. First, uh, go to your family and say you are really disturbed by the drift of your church to your left. You're going to go talk to the pastor about it and have a confrontation with him about it and speak to him uh, and discuss it with him. That will prepare them for the fact that you leave. Have the discussion. Have it in goodwill and, uh, and with your pastor about what's happening. Uh, if he has no satisfactory response, then you have to leave, and then you just have to tell your parents why and why you're, that you're doing it and why you're doing it. I was baptized an Episcopalian because I was my closest and oldest friend was an Episcopalian priest, and so that was kind of the thing that I was closest to. My my theology is very Catholic, but I don't believe in certain things that the Catholics believe in. So I. Episcopalianism is essentially Catholicism light, and that is why I've gone with it. It has become a real problem for me, too. My churches are very, very left-wing. They really don't care about uh, conservatives. They despise them. And so I frequently, uh, I'll go to the home church that uh, our God King, Jeremy Boring, uh, runs, and but I will drop in on the Episcopal Church for uh, communion, to take communion. Um, so that I'm, I'm patching together a life. I had a church in uh, Santa Barbara when I lived there that was really good. Um, I, it was it was the one that was attached to the school up there, the name of which has just slipped my mind. But there's a Christian school up there, and they had a church attached to it, and uh, it was called the Covenant Church, I think. And I really like them. Really hard to find because I'm not hardcore social uh, conservative, but I am a conservative when it comes to theology. I am a conservative when it comes to politi politics. It was very hard to find a church that suits me. The thing about the Episcopal Church is it's all about the liturgy. So it doesn't matter what the priest says so much as the liturgy, which reminds you that of of your forgiveness in Christ and of Christ's resurrection and you take communion and basically I zone out for most of the <laughs> sermons because I don't care what he's saying about. Hey, you know, I, I, I'm out of time, but I want to do a very, very quick uh, tickety-boo news if I can. Um, do we have the tickety-boo guy? There he is. <laughs> Yesterday, I told a story about my friend Obianuju Ikiocha. And uh, she got into a debate. She's a very powerful fighter against abortion. And she got in a debate with Bill Prady, who is the executive producer of the um, Big, Bang. Big Bang Theory. Thank you. And Prady cut her off. Prady came back and apologized to her for cutting her off. And good for him. It's not that they agreed to agree. They had a long debate. But he did agree that he had called her a bigot and that she wasn't. And he apologized to her for that. And I think props to him. That makes him look really good. It's because, you know, you don't have to agree, but you do have to keep the conversation going, and you cannot retreat into calling people names. It is just the problem with the country. It is the problem with our device, divided country. It is what the press is selling us, and we shouldn't buy it. So good for Bill Prady and the Big Bang Theory uh, for coming back and talking to Uju about her opinions again. And, uh, and he's, he's unblocked her on Twitter, and that's the way to do it. All right, we have Victor Davis Hanson tomorrow. Good guess. Come on. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll be here. It will be after that. It's the Clavenless weekend, so hold on to your your hair and your hats and whatever else you have on your head. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. I'll see you tomorrow.